Father God, uh, meteorologists tell us that there are many in harm's way right now. As Irma goes up the coast from the Keys to St. Petersburg and Naples, there's a lot of individuals in the path heading to Tampa. We ask, Father, that you might weaken the storm, that it would not take much life and do much damage. And regardless what it does, we pray that there would be great relief brought to those who are suffering, who are isolated, alone, alienated. We pray for those who might be trapped in the storm right now, that you would be ever near and dear to them. We pray for those in Houston who have faced Harvey in Texas City and Lamarck, Galveston. We ask, Father, for those who have had their lives turned upside down, that you would be ever near and that uh, you would bring relief, not only physically, but also spiritually. And those out west who are facing fire that um, is not easily contained. And Father, in other parts of the world, people face war and famine and so many other trials. We look forward to the day when your son returns and takes the redeemed home. And Father, in the interim, help us to look to you, to rely on you, to share the gospel. And we ask that you would be so merciful and tender to such fallen, frail, and finite humanity. And Father, as we look at your word, we ask that you would speak to us this morning, allow it to impact our lives for your glory. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen. Chuck Swindoll, in one of his books, talks about Wiley Coyote. Some of us remember Wiley Coyote on Saturday morning. He was a genius in his own mind. He had all these acme bombs and cages and traps. No creature has ever been electrocuted more, has died more times, had gone over the cliff more times, always in search to catch that elusive roadrunner who always won and always said, beep, beep. Perhaps nobody in cartoon history has had less success. But this isn't cartoons. And here we have Sanballat, we have Tobiah, we have Geshem the Arab, and these three have had all sorts of failures. They have erected their own series of acme bombs and traps. They're always trying to take out Nehemiah. Nehemiah, who was in the citadel of Susa in Persia, who was the cupbearer to King Artaxerxes, the most powerful monarch in his day. Nehemiah was number two. He slept certainly on a Persian feather bed. He gave it all up to go a 1,000 miles, to don a hard hat to Jerusalem, 
because the, law, the walls have laid in ruin of Jerusalem for 141 years. The city of the great king, his city has been a mockery, a point of ridicule by the enemies of God. And so God raises up Nehemiah to go to the city of his ancestry, to go to a place he has not gone before, to give up the feather bed of Persia, to don the hat of construction, not only to rebuild the wall, but then to remain as governor for years on end. And in the midst of this, we have Satan. He's trying to stop the rebuilding of the walls. He loves the fact that the city of the great king lies in ruins. And so Satan raises up Sanballat and his sidekick Tobiah and Geshem the Arab, and they lay in wait for Nehemiah. They've tried ridicule, humiliation, slander, gossip, intimidation. They're trying to take out Nehemiah. Today they'll try compromise. A word that in many settings is good, but when it comes to the spiritual life, it is not good. Let's pick up in our text and read from Nehemiah chapter 6. We'll look at verses 1 to 9 to start with. Now when Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshub the Arab and the rest of our enemies heard that I had built the wall and that there was no breach left in it, although up to this time I had not yet set up the doors of the gates, Sanballat and Geshub sent to me saying, come, let us meet together in Hakafarim in the plain of Ono. But they intended to do me harm. And I sent messengers to them saying, I am doing a great work. I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave and come down to you? And they sent to me four times in this way, and I answered them in the same manner. In the same way, Sanballat for the fifth time sent his servant to me with an open letter in his hand. And it was written, It is reported among the nations, and Geshem also says it, that you and the Jews intend to rebel. That is why you are building the wall. And according to these reports, you wish to become their king. And you have also set up prophets to proclaim concerning you in Jerusalem, there is a king in Judah. And now the king will hear these reports. So now, come, let us take counsel together. Then I sent to him, saying, No such thing as you have said have been done. You are inventing them out of your own mind. For they all wanted to frighten us, thinking, Their hand will drop from the work, and it will not be done. But now, O God, strengthen my hands. The walled structure is in place. No breaches are left. The gates have not yet been hung. The plaster is still wet. The paint is not yet dry. And yet these enemies of God, these enemies of Nehemiah, Sambalat, Tobiah, and Geshem the Arab, they come. And while the walls are sturdy, we need to worry about the life of Nehemiah. Will he stand? You see, at times of euphoria, at times of spiritual height, at times when things are going well, those are the times you and I might let down our guard. Paul has warned us in 1 Corinthians 10, 12, let him who think he stand take heed lest he fall. Things are going well now for Nehemiah. 
50 of the 52 days have passed. The walls are almost complete. The gates are almost hung. Things are going well. And it's at moments like this that complacency can easily set in. Nehemiah was used by God to restore respectability to Israel for the first time in 141 years. It's time that he gets a little rest, a little relaxation, a little R&R. And it's at just this time that Satan arranges for some of his minions, Sambalat, Tobiah, and Geshem, to send Nehemiah a letter. Hey, Nehemiah, this is a hot and sweaty business. You've been building the walls. You've traveled a thousand miles. You need a little R&R. Let's meet together in Ono. Now, we don't know much about Ono, do we? But it's 20 miles north and west of Jerusalem. Jerusalem is a hot and sweaty place. Although it's 2,600 feet above sea level, it's a glorified rock. It's what it is. It's a glorified rock. Ono is the oasis. Ono is Florida in the middle of a Wausau winter. Ono is 2510 celebration cake in the middle of a diet. Ono is a round of golf in the middle of a month of work. Ono is the oasis. Maybe Geshem, Tobiah, Sambalat, they're not so bad. They're saying, come to Ono. And of course, Nehemiah says no to Ono because he knows it's a trap. He knows that they want to destroy him. They say, come. Let's sit down. Let's have some Cokes together. Let's talk. Let's compromise. I love the way Nehemiah responds to the invitation. The invitation's rather vague, isn't it? Come, let us meet in Ono. So Nehemiah essentially says four different times, why should I leave the work? What do you want me to do? Why are we having to meet 20 miles from now? I've got a purpose. I've got a goal. God has set before me a task. Why would I give up a God-given task to come? Give me the reason. And five times, Sambalat and Tobiah send back vagueness. They won't give the reason. They just say, let's compromise. Let's go to Ono. Let's talk. Take your eyes off the task. Take your eyes off God's goal. Let's just meet in Ono. I love the fact that Nehemiah does not escalate the war. He doesn't accuse them. He merely says, I've got a task. I've got a goal. I've got a purpose. I'm staying. I'm going to say no to Ono. And yet there's all sorts of slander going on. May I make an observation? It's my observation that in a a group of Christ followers like this, there are many individuals who are filled with tact. There are many individuals who choose their, why, their words wisely, whether on Facebook or Instagram or on the phone or in purpose, they, they, they choose their words wisely. If that describes you, well done. But I've also noticed Then in a large group, there's always a few individuals that look at tact almost as a form of compromise. They look at tact almost as an affront to godliness. They're heresy seekers or they're 
sowers of discord among the cistern and the brethren. And rather than answering with tact, they have to answer with fire. They have to answer with heat. They have to up the ante. Nehemiah isn't like that. He's asked five times to meet him in Ono. He doesn't say what is on his mind. You guys are trying to snuff out my life. You guys are trying to stop the work of the Lord. You guys are trying to stop the rebuilding of the wall. He could cast all sorts of true accusations. He doesn't do that. He responds with tax. He says, no, this is what God has assigned me to do. I'm not leaving the task. I'm not going to Ono. And the result is slander. Slander. You notice what Sambalat does with the fifth one. The fifth time he sends an open letter. This would be like writing a message and putting it at all the windows in the main street of a town. This would be like writing a message and nailing it on all the telephone poles and, and all the trees. An open letter is so that everybody can read it. You see, in the 5th and 6th century B.C., how you would really do it is you would write a scroll, you would roll it up, you would take some wax, you would melt the wax, you would take a signet ring, you would drive it into the wax and the, wing, and the uh, wax would solidify. That's called a bull or bulla. Some of you know of a papal bull. That's what it is. It's the sealing of the word from the pope. That's where it comes from, a papal bull. His word is sealed and is bound for his followers. That's how you should send a letter. But this is an open letter. The purpose is to intimidate. The purpose is so that everyone will read it and say, Nehemiah, you better go. You better obey Sanballat. You better obey Tobiah. Because if you don't, we're going to be in trouble. This is persecution. You see, what Sambalat and Tobiah is doing is they're saying this. You better meet us in Ono or we're going to create some rumors, some stories, some untruths about you. And we're not even going to let you guess what they are. We're going to tell everybody you want to be crowned as king. We want to tell everybody that the reason you're building the wall is to push out the true king King Artaxerxes, and exert your rule over the people. This has a familiarity to it. You see, Ezra and Nehemiah are very similar in time period. Ezra a little bit before Nehemiah. And in Ezra chapter 4, the same Persian king, Artaxerxes, 20 years earlier, had come to Jerusalem and destroyed the city. Because somebody had claimed that a Jerusalemite was trying to become king. So what does Sambalat and Tobiah do? They repeat history. They say, you're not going to meet us in Ono? We're going to give an open letter. We're going to spread it throughout all the streets. We're going to tell people that you want to be king. And when the real king, Artaxerxes, hears about it, it's doomsday for Jerusalem. This is backroom intimidation and the lie. This is slander. This is gossip. The late Marvin Gray, I heard it through the grapevine, wasn't the first one to slander individuals or to 
hear slander about. But God hates slander. God hates gossip. I remember a number of years ago, I was in Florida and I was driving down the street and I saw a sign of a business that said, the Gossip Palace. And it was a beauty parlor. And I noted that the parking lot was full. Maybe because they cut hair really well, I hope so. Or maybe because people want to be in the know. Sanballat uses slander, he uses gossip. He uses it to attack the character, the integrity of Nehemiah. Nehemiah left the feather bed in Persia, went a thousand miles to Jerusalem. He donned a hard hat. He becomes governor. He's building the wall by day, securing the city by night. Life is not very easy. It's now difficult. And the result is that he is being slandered. And we shouldn't be surprised. We should be horrified, but not surprised. The truth of the matter is, Scripture says that when we serve the king, when we serve the great king, when we honor the king, when we lead for the king, when we participate in the king's work, people will come along, sometimes in the church, sometimes outside the church, and they will bring slander and gossip and persecution into our lives. I think of Matthew 5. In Matthew 5, we read the following. In verses 10 to 12, it's actually the eighth of the eight Beatitudes. This is where we're going in two weeks. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. For theirs is, notice the present tense, this is not interesting. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That is the moment you believe in Christ, the kingdom of heaven is now yours. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. If one lives for the Lord, if one serves for the Lord, if one leads for the Lord, if one is engaged in the Lord's work, people will come along, sometimes outside the church, tragically sometimes in the church. They will sow discord among the brethren, discord among the cistern, and there will be all sorts of slander said and gossip said about one's name. What does God think of that? What does God think of individuals who slander, who gossip, who sow discord among the brethren and the sister, who sow discord even in a church, who fail to follow leadership and do it their own way or insist on their own way? What does God think? Let me read from Proverbs uh, chapter 6, verses 16 to 19, it says this, there are six things that the Lord hates. Don't ever say that God doesn't hate things. The Bible says he does. There are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him. Haughty or proud eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, Feet that make haste to run to evil. A false witness who breathes out lies. And one who sows discord among brothers. 
In Proverbs 8, 3, we see perverted speech I hate, says the Lord. In Proverbs 10, 18, whoever utters slander is a fool. Listen to Matthew 12, the 36th verse. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will have to give an account for every careless word that they speak. Loose lips sink ships. That's not only on placards during World War II, it's true in the church of Jesus Christ. If we're not careful with our speech, and I believe that many, most are very careful, but if we're not careful with our speech, great damage can be done to the cause and the kingdom of Christ. Although not part of the kingdom necessarily, I think of a historical account in the life of Winston Churchill. Some of us really like Winston Churchill. He was the prime minister during England's greatest hour, the nightly bombings by Nazi Germany of London. You remember his great speech. We will fight them on the beaches. We will fight them in the towns. We will fight them in the streets. We will fight them in the hills. We will never give up. That's the guy. Well, one particular time he was giving a speech and it was about a year before he was done with his last term. He was up in age and uh, he was sitting in the front row and there were a couple guys behind him and the guys were whispering to one another. They were assuming they were whispering with a quiet voice. And one said to the other, hey, that's Churchill. And the other said, yeah, I hear he's a fool. Besides that, uh, he's senile and he should really resign. A few minutes later, uh, Churchill gave a speech. After he was done, he walked up behind the two and he said, uh, and some say Churchill is deaf. Don't believe it. <laughs> That's what happens with slander. Slander always has a way of coming back to the individual. But even if it doesn't, it attacks, it damages the integrity of someone else. When you and I are tempted to hear slander or pass slander on, when we're tempted to engage in slander, there's a good acronym. It's THINK. THINK. T, is it true? H, is it helpful? I, is it important? N, is it necessary? K, is it kind? THINK. True, helpful, important, necessary, and kind. If what we are about to say or hear does not fit into these five categories, whether in the church or outside the church, we should not engage in listening or in discussing the topic. If we live for the Lord, we're going to face, like Nehemiah, individuals, probably a small minority, but it's a painful minority, who will slander us, who will gossip about us, who will say things that are far from truth, just because they can get away with it. Or they'll place something on Facebook, very, very poorly worded, very unkind, taking a jab at someone, and then they think they've gotten away with it. But God says the day of reckoning is coming when you and I will have to give an account for every careless word that we have uttered. We need to learn to be gracious. I love what Nehemiah does in verse 8. 
He confronts it. Sometimes we're called to confront sin. And I love even more what he does in verses 9 and 14. He gives it over to the Lord. We might have to confront. That might be a job. We are our brother's keeper to answer Cain's question to God. Yes, we are our brother's keeper. But we leave vengeance and revenge and payback to the Lord. Let's continue in our text in Nehemiah chapter 6. I want to read verses 10 to 14. Now I went... Now when I went into the house of Shemaiah, the son of Deliah, son of Mehetabel, who was confined to his home, he said, let us meet together in the house of God within the temple. That is the holy place. Let us close the doors of the temple, for they are coming to kill you. They are coming to kill you by night. But I said, should such a man as I run away? And what man such as I could go into the temple and live? I will not go. And I understood and saw that God had not sent him, but that he had pronounced a prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sambalat had hired him. For this purpose he was hired, that I should be afraid and act in this way and sin, and so they could give me a bad name in order to taunt me. Remember Tobiah and Sambalat, O oh my God, according to these things that they did, and also the prophetess Nodiah and the rest of the prophets who wanted to make me afraid. It's pretty clear what's gone on. Tobiah, Sambalat, Geshem, they've tried to intimidate Nehemiah into meeting them at Ono. They've slandered him. Now they bring in the big guns. They bring in the false teachers. They bring in the false prophets. They pay someone to say things on behalf of God that aren't true in order to get Nehemiah to do what they want Nehemiah to do. Remember what Scripture says. The closer you and I come to the return of Christ, the more false prophets and prophets and false teachers will arise. We've been warned, and how much more today than in Nehemiah's day? Well, how do you identify false prophets, false teachers? Well, Deuteronomy 11 and 18 tells us that we are to test the spirits, also 1 John 4. We are to test the spirits to make sure they come from God. And so when somebody teaches things that are questionable, we're to be like the Acts 17 Bereans. We're to take what is said and compare it to the Word of God. And if it's not even to the Word of God, we ignore the teacher and always believe in God. Well, there are three and perhaps more problems with what the prophet said. First, the prophet said, leave the task that God has given you. When God gives us a task, we are to complete the task. God's not in the business of giving us a task and then sending us away before the completion is done. So he recognizes there's a problem there. The second thing is they say, let's go to the temple. People are coming to kill you. Let's go into the holy place. In other words, go into the place where only one priest, the high priest, on one day of the year, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, Leviticus 16, can come one time in his life. Let's meet there. Do you remember the last ruler who did that? Second Chronicles 26. King Uzziah. He thought to himself, I'm a king. I might as well be a priest and a prophet. He went into the holy place to light the incense before the Lord. It was in direct violation of God's word. And God struck him with leprosy. And so we have false teaching 
we have the prophet telling Nehemiah to do something contrary to the word of God. God will never tell a teacher or a prophet to tell us to do something that directly contradicts his word. He won't do that. He's not a God of confusion. And finally, this prophet is saying, you need to be afraid. Well, we ought to be aware of the wiles of Satan, but not afraid of Satan. Aware, yes. Weary, yes. Afraid, no. Listen to Isaiah 41.10. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. In 2 Timothy 1.7, we read that God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but God has given us a spirit of power. So how does Nehemiah know that these teachers are false? Because they say things that are contrary to the word of God. To be weary of Satan, to be weary of our enemy, absolutely to be afraid, no, for greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. 1 John 4.4. 4. I remember years ago I heard of a pastor. It was Halloween. The church had a Halloween party and he dressed up as Satan. Can you imagine? But there's something worse than a pastor dressing up as Satan. And that's Satan dressing up as a pastor. In 2 Corinthians 11, 14 tells us that the enemy masquerades as an angel of light. And so we've been warned again and again in Scripture that the closer we come to the return of Christ, the more false teachers and false prophets. 1 John 4, 1 says, Do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. If you and I live for the Lord, and I trust that we are attempting to do so empowered by God's Spirit, if we live for the Lord, if we lead for the Lord, if we serve for the Lord, people will take shots at us. They'll try and intimidate us. They'll try and slander us or gossip us or ruin our good name. We are called to continue to serve the Lord regardless of what happens around us. We are called to keep our integrity. Some of you know the name Daniel Webster. In the 1830s, there was no American more famous than Daniel Webster. Ralph Waldo Emerson wrote this. He said, let Webster's lofty face ever on thousands shine. A beacon set that freedom's race might gather amens from the radiant sign. Nobody writes this stuff about me. <laughs> However, not long after that, Emerson ran for president. And in order to get his party's nomination, he switched his position on racism and on slavery. He went from rightly being anti-slavery to being pro-slavery. And towards the end of his life, Emerson wrote this. Why did all manly gifts in Webster fail? Because he wrote on nature's grandest brow, I'm for sale. Nehemiah was not for sale. He was not for sale. Even if his integrity was slandered, 
even if he was gossiped about, even if the discord among the brethren was shoved at him, he was not for sale. May we be Nehemiahs in the 21st century. Let's pray. (coughs) Dear Lord, we thank you for the life of Nehemiah. It's been rich in the summer and just one more week next week of Nehemiah. Continue to take this man and teach from his character and his life into our lives for your glory and our betterment. In the name of Jesus we pray, amen.